The Guardian. Welcome to the Guardian World Cup podcast after what was the ultimate week in cricket, quite literally because it was the end of the tournament. New Zealand advanced to the final in a thriller that stung our eyes and clenched our throats. India subsided in a way that probably just stung. Then all romantic notions and fairy tale dreams were crushed beneath a lurid gold boot heel as the debutante men in black could do little to prevent an Auster alien invasion. Shane Warne worked his way through the entire team, support staff and then up into the crowd, inquiring of each respondent just how much they planned to drink to mark what they had witnessed. How much do you drink for the spring solstice? How much did you drink at the fall of the Berlin Wall? Will you drink until Shrove Tuesday? Will you drink Belgium? Will you drink the moon? To answer these questions, or probably other ones, it's Jeff Lemon here in The Guardian's Melbourne studio, just an empty bottle's throw from the MCG. And I'm joined today by the preternatural eye of calm at the centre of the BBC's broadcasting hurricane, Alison Mitchell, itinerant cricket observer and Northern Hemisphere astralophile, Will McPherson, and the ABC's chronicler of the life and times of both bat and ball, Jim Maxwell. I'll make this promise to those around the world who do not love Australia's team, we won't spend the entire time talking about them. There'll be plenty to come on New Zealand, on the tournament itself as a whole, the best players from all nations and whatever else drags itself from the swamp of our collective consciousness to kidnap our teenage matinee stars. So to start proceedings today... I'd like to ask you, Will McPherson, what was there as a lover of cricket to take away from the World Cup final or was it a squib irretrievably dampened? It was one hell of an Australian performance. Uh, that's what we can take from yesterday. Um, New Zealand didn't play the way they have throughout the tournament. They, I mean, they live by the sword, they die by the sword. Brendan McCullum, third ball of the day, or his third ball of the day. He uh, was out swinging again. Um, but they just, yeah, they... It was an overwhelming atmosphere. It was a record crowd. Um, and I, I actually wrote last night that I can understand how you would be overwhelmed by by the MCG on a day like that, the first time you've played there. Um, I was overwhelmed as a spectator. I was at the Ashes, the first day of the Ashes last year, when we were 91,000 and something. Mm-hmm. Yesterday was next level. I was outside for the for McCullum's wicket and jumped off my seat as a just involuntary reaction to what happened as everybody else did it and... I had no choice, basically. Um, and it was it was just an absolutely incredible atmosphere. That was um, definitely the biggest moment of the day, wasn't it? That's sort of when the mm. ground exploded and you thought maybe this game is already gone. It was like the balloon of expectation and tension that had blown up and up and up in the build-up just went pop. And <laughs> with the euphoria of all those Aussie fans in the crowd who went up, and I mean, the MCG shook, mm. didn't it? But then in that moment as well, this sort of, for the neutral, that's kind of crushing kind of, oh, that is probably it. Yep. And, you know, there was the partnerships. It was a game which had its moments of, could they pull it back? Mm-hmm. Could it be different? But I think deep down, you'll felt that once McCullum went, yeah, out for a big blob, that could have been it. We were talking to Mark Richardson, the former a New Zealand batsman, about McCullum. And uh, he said he was just overpumped. He knows exactly how he plays his cricket. It's an adrenaline rush, a surge. That's how he plays. And he couldn't curb himself. Even after he'd missed two, missed them by quite a margin, he was still going to go and take him on and whack him back over his head. And the Australians expected this kind of um, reckless uh, attempt to pull them all over the, the park. And that's why Craig McDermott had obviously got into Stark's ear and said, pitch it up. Mm. He's going to have a go. Every chance he'll miss one. And it was a shame, really. Uh, there was so much expectation uh, across the ditch about what McCullum was going to do to the Australians again. 
but it never happened. And you know, it, it, it took all the air out of the balloon, didn't it? Yeah, well, particularly when it's something that he'd done to you know every other bowler pretty much and every other bowling attack. Um, I mean, he had a couple of low scores against the, the you know slightly less damaging sides against Bangladesh and West Indies, for instance. But you know, he'd, he'd hit Dale Stane for twenty five off and over. He'd completely destroyed England. He'd um, and he destroyed Australia when they played Mitchell the Johnson, previous time. Particularly, yeah. he went after. But he didn't. What was interesting in Auckland in the first game, I didn't feel he went off to start quite as much as he did hit Stark's second ball for six. That is in that true. Game. <laughs> it's true. Coming but, down um, the track and driving over was, cover. It was, which... it was Johnson and yeah. Stark who I thought. Uh, sorry, Johnson and Cummins who I thought he really went after that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It would be easy to try and bemoan his performance yesterday, but we can't have it both ways. Can't, can't we? We can't enjoy him at his. You know when he's actually getting middling it. And then criticise him when he when he misses them. And how good were Stark, Hazelwood, and then Johnson coming in? I mean, when your change bowler is bowling mm. as lightning fast as, as Johnson is, I mean that is such a luxury. But it was just the three balls at McCullum face were an in- incredible little you know tiny passage of play, which felt so important in the in the context of the match. And seeing him charge. Stark attempt to charge him second ball. I mean, it had the hairs on your neck or standing on end. You thought, come on, something's going to happen here, and it it duly did. But Mm. on the one hand, you can talk about McCullum being brash, but you've also got to say just how well did Stark come out to be bowling like that first up in a World Cup final? Brilliant, and particularly with the you know you've got that bowling attack that's been uh, that's that's bowling so fast and so dangerously, and then Glenn Maxwell comes on, (laughs) floats one down, (laughs) and and the fast bowlers have discombobulated them so much that that. Guptill plays, you know, it's a sort of weird park cricket shot and is bowled off stump by a nothing ball. I think Guptill got two off his last 19 balls, I think it was, um, and was just looking a bit scratchy and then obviously fancied a bit of Glenn Maxwell. And That's the beauty of the captaincy, isn't it, to have your quicks and then slip in the spinner. Well, it's the timing of your bowling changes, which I think Michael Clark's a master at. We saw that in Adelaide when he had Maxwell on and he was hoiked for two sixes by Misbah Lucky. He took him off and came back again and over later. He went to the well with a big shot and down Finch's throat. So there's a lot of calculation about these bowling changes and he's very fortunate that he's got uh, three of the fastest, certainly two of the fastest bowlers in the game. When you're bowling 150 Ks, uh, you're normally going to get a result if you're moving the ball and that's what Stark's done throughout the series. And, and for me watching Australia, it was the old suffocation of the opposition uh, through really exciting, challenging and bowling that is hard to get under and dispatch. And even though we had a century partnership, you just felt, uh, no, nah, they're not going to make enough here. And and it was sad that they didn't uh, linger in the tail and at least get 250 or 260. But even that may not have been enough. So I will excuse McCullum because if he'd come off... That was their best chance of winning the game. They had to get over 300, and his batting was probably the key to that if he got away with it. He didn't. I don't think there's any way to be surprised at what happened with McCollum. You know, through the nine games of the World Cup, he had four really low scores and five uh, big, fast half centuries. So, you know, it's it's roughly a 50-50 shot that, you know, it's like the... Toss of the coin. He won the toss, but he lost the, uh, the the second one. And on the days when McCullum hasn't come off, there's been someone else who has. And mm-hmm. just today, for the final, with the, the quality of the Australian attack, although Elliot, you know, did his level best and got going, it just wasn't wasn't enough by that stage. Yeah, it does make you wonder. Though. You know, McCullum kept getting these sort of twenty-two ball fifties. Imagine if he'd faced seventy-five balls in a game. What would he have done? <laughs> would, you know, havoc would have been. He real. would have got tired, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> His arms would have got sore. He'd be. Like, oh. <laughs> 
But uh, I mean, there was there was a, a bouncer from Stark yesterday that was nearly over the batsman's head that was clocked at one hundred and forty nine point eight or something like that. It, you know, he was he was absolutely steaming in. He's he's generating this pace from you know such a sort of easy kind of run up. He doesn't seem to muscle the ball down, but it's it, his timing in his delivery must just be perfect at the moment. How much of Stark do, do you reckon, Jim, has, has genuinely been fired up by those comments Shane Warne made about him earlier in the summer? Has that got anything to do with it? About him being no. soft as it fired him up and made him bowl faster, oh, meaner. I, I don't. I don't want to think so. <laughs> really, I just like to think Stark has gradually uh, built himself towards this after having some injury, and I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, th- this has been the timing of a, a preparation like Melbourne Cup and Maccabi Diva for Australia, and they've reached their peak at the crucial point. And Mitchell Stark's been been part of that. I mean, he actually zoned in in the tri series when he started hitting fellas on the pads there with swinging deliveries. So it's been coming, and we saw it before he got injured when he went through Sri Lanka in a Test match down in Hobart with a reverse swing. He's the he's the new he's the main Mitch now, mm. uh, and he's given Mitch Johnson <laughs> a, a bit of rivalry uh, for those bragging rights about the quickest and the most intimidating and uh, lethal bowler. But actually, Mitch Johnson has also peaked at the right time. You know, he was a little bit off, possibly in the, in the pool stages, and then the three knockout games, he's been right on the money. Um, it's really yeah, hit his straps at the right time. Well, as Ellie said, having him come on as you know first or second change is is a rare luxury. And but what's really struck me is that Mitchell Johnson isn't fussed by that. There's no sort of ego. You know, he's not offended by having been sort of pushed down the bowling order because he knows he still has a job to do. Yeah, it's all about roles, isn't it? And if you can come in after the change, the batsman after the ten eight or ten overs, ordinarily that's when a batsman thinks, okay, now's my chance to attack. Well, Mitch Johnson steaming in. That ain't going to happen. Here's something I wanted to ask you all about. Now, there's a sort of expectation that Australian teams just win things. You know, they've they've won. This is their fifth World Cup win. Um, there, there was a sense of inevitability about it almost. But if you go back even a few months to, say, November last year, that South Africa series, there was no inevitability about that team because most of the players who won the World Cup final were not necessarily regular members in the team. You know, Hazelwood was there and thereabouts and played a couple of games. Stark was in and out of that side. Johnson was often being rested. Um, Brad Haddon was described as being sort of too old and not good enough as a bat before this World Cup and people thought that a, a better batsman should have been picked. Um, Faulkner and Finch were probably the only two real regulars. Clark missed a lot of games and was injured. Maxwell was doubted as to whether he was good enough to actually pull it off at this level. Warner hadn't established himself as a one-day player. And Steve Smith wasn't even in the team in, at the, for the first match of that South Africa series. He, he wasn't picked um, and then came in. And Watson has, has been in sort of poor form over the summer and then came good. So you've really got sort of nine out of that 11 who were not established players even three or four months ago and yet have come together with this sort of um, inevitable force to win this World Cup. You've got some focus, haven't you? What's the campaign about? Why did India improve uh, dramatically on their five-month tour of Australia? Because the focus was champions, they've got to put up a big show, which they did until the, the semi-final. So I, I think uh, you know, this is the problem with the proliferation of uh, so much, you know, one day in T20 cricket. Uh, you, you really don't have that kind of focus that you do when you get to the pointy end of a World Cup. 
and uh, that's why Australia's performance improved uh, so uh, so dramatically uh, in in the last month. Poor old George Bailey, captain at the start of the World Cup, and then not in the side and not in the side for the final. He's almost a bit of a forgotten man, isn't he? From someone who you know he'd, he'd had a good one day summer, he'd been hitting the fifties, and had sort of as captain had had. Oh, made, made that team it, cohesive yeah. um, from from those scraps. When they went up to collect the medals, so they go up alphabetically, and he was first. And I, thought, yes. I just thought, you know, in another <laughs> life, another world, you you go up last, and you're yeah. you're lifting the thing, and then uh, yeah. there he was, sort of it? the spare part. And, and you know, how much has the the Philip Hughes thing galvanised that side as well? From you know the start of the summer, November against South Africa, it hadn't happened then a side coming together, galvanised by you know, an invisible force, an invisible 16th man who was there but visible on Clark's armband with the PH. Um, you know, no, no surprise that they dedicated the, the World Cup to him. It was in all of their minds, even as I think a lot of, a lot of the talk, certainly in the media, had, had sort of faded away right. about that, running in the background, but it was always there mm. for the team. And nothing focuses the mind like a loss. Losing to Eden Park. And, the, and they knew they just about had New Zealand, even though they'd made next to nothing, 151, they almost won the game. Mm. So I, I think it just got sharper as the, the show went on and we had the old Australian relentlessness in, in all sorts of ways in uh, their their confidence, their attitude towards the opponent. They don't mind burying people um, sort of physically and verbally uh, as well with more, the mortal blows of Yorkers from Mitchell Stark. So they're they're on an extraordinary high. And if you look at the makeup of that side, you know you've probably got about eight players of that side who'd be very likely to play the next World Cup on H. You know, Brad Haddon won't be there, Clark won't be there, Mitchell Johnson probably won't be there. Watson probably won't. Yeah, and Watson. But you've you've still got this sort of core of of young um, young talent in the likes of Maxwell and Faulkner in that bowling attack. Steve um, Smith. I mean, yeah. could be captain for ten years. Mm. I'm the best batsman in the world for 10 years, depressingly. <laughs> so what, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. What happens, presumably, Bailey doesn't get his captaincy job back because Smith will take it over as an apprenticeship for the test side now that Clark will be a test-only captain. Um, they'll want to have Steve Smith getting some captaincy points up because he may need to take over at any time given Clark's injury. Um, well, they don't play one-day cricket again, do they, until the end of the Ashes series. Mm. By then, well, Bailey may not be in the picture. Right. They would have moved on. To yeah. another young talent. You think that's the way things will go, Will? I think that's likely, yeah. Uh, I mean, although the batting stocks, we all spoke about it last summer when they whitewashed in the Ashes, you know, sort of, it was kind of a thrown together batting lineup, if you like. Um, Which was often even, protected by Haddon, Haddon as, a, exactly. as, as a very risky insurance policy. But even now, it's not 100% clear where the net, you know, who would come in when Clark goes or whatever. So, you know, I think I don't think it's all over for George Bailey. I'd like to think it's not over for George Bailey because I think he might be the nicest man of the World Cup. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think he might be a little bit concerned, you could say. Brendan McCullum might have given him a run for his money. Brendan you know, McCullum was very nice yesterday. Watching him run over to shake Clark's hand as oh, he yeah. left the field after being dismissed. Well, that's know. in stark contrast, isn't it, to the, uh, <laughs> you know... Get off the field, you're out. Type of um, <laughs> goodbye yes. to Grant Elliott when he uh, when right. he left the field. You may not have noticed, but you've terms. been dismissed. Um. <laughs> yes. By the way, the, the dressing rooms are that way. Um, I, yeah, Steve Smith. I think he's he's been playing like a leader all summer, and then he began to to sound like a leader when he sat next to Clark in the press conference after the semi final. And you know, it was after that, wasn't it? Clark goes home, wakes up his wife, and says, "I'm deciding to retire." Almost as if he'd sat there and, and realised that okay, this lad is my heir apparent. And now is the time. 
Time to go, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think he, he chose well. Maybe he could have left the announcement until after the game, but that's not the way Michael Clark does his yeah, I, I don't know. I, th- I think as a, as fans, they like the opportunity to to watch a player and, and and applaud them off the ground. And you can't deny it was quite a moment, wasn't it, when Clark did leave the MCG and and everybody rose and applauding him. And I understand totally the argument about okay, it takes attention onto him, and maybe it should have been left for the team. I think fans enjoy, you know, like they saw with Jai Wardner, Sangakara, and they know it's their last match. Will looks like he's itching to say something. <laughs> a lot of people were saying that it's a shame that Clark wasn't out there at the end, but I reckon he might have quite liked being able to walk off the ground on his own. Uh, yeah. Um, I got that impression he was looking up at the sky and you know, I think he quite enjoyed it. Was that. A, it was a very different type of moment, wasn't, exactly, wasn't it, yeah. than it would have been if he was there at the end, hit the mm. winning runs and, you know, celebrating the victory. He was able to actually celebrate his career with the crowd as well. And it was sort of fitting that, that Steve Smith was able to seal that, hit those winning runs, you know, as, as the, the heir apparent. Yeah, there's a real nice symmetry, I think, watching the, the, the two of them out there when they were in partnership together with the the soon-to-be-past captain and the future leader together. That's gone! You are on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Alison Mitchell, Jim Maxwell and Will McPherson. And I'd like now to talk about New Zealand. They've been a side that has got so much support throughout this tournament. They've captured people's imaginations. They've captured their hearts. They've got all the hearts in a big heart jar and they're not giving them back, <laughs> which you'd think normally would not make them very popular at all, but they'll make a lot of money selling them to organ transplants. Um, but, you know, sorry, slight tangent there, but they've actually been much nicer than that. They're not stealing any people's body parts, but they're, uh, they've, they've just done so much to, to get people on side and to make people they've, they've made so many New Zealand fans and there were people in India saying there are one point two billion New Zealanders now, <laughs> which they won't all fit. I can tell you that I've been there. But uh, you know what? Tell me, tell me your thoughts about New Zealand throughout the tournament. I mean, they were they were impossibly likable until the last one. They, I mean, McCullum at the press conference yesterday was saying there are going to be a few retirements, but we're not going to do it yet because this is not our moment. We're going to wait a few days. I mean, Vittori's going to go, isn't he? Grant Elliott, you'd think, possibly Ross Taylor. Maybe even McC- I hope not McCullum. I really mm. hope not McCullum. Yeah, I'd like to see him carry on. But yeah. Will his body carry on for that much longer? I think he's going to retire. Um, but what they need to do when we next play the World Cup down under, whenever that is, is um, try and work it so that the finals played at Eden Park <laughs> and not the MCG. Uh, because you know it's horses for courses. They were brilliant on their own grounds. And it's not just because of the size. It's because of the, this powerful uh, support that they had from the crowd and the, the knowledge of the grounds, that, you know, the feel that you have. So um, look, in, a, in their own backyard, they were just spectacularly brilliant. And they brought people to the game who couldn't have given a monkeys about it. They thought it was probably a boring game. So hopefully they stick with New Zealand and the the Black Caps continue to stick it up everyone else like the Poms in a few months and maybe even yeah, Australia yeah. when they come back at the end of the year because they're a, a very good side. They need one or two more top-line players and they'll be like the side back in Richard Hadley's day. I mean, this is the first time I can remember that New Zealand will be coming over uh, to play England and this is the supposedly the, the little appetiser before the big event which will be the Ashes and New Zealand are, are coming over as a, as a world-class quality side and suddenly it's England who are actually the underdogs and they're going to have to scrap to, to gain some pride and credibility and respectability back. Um, but I think with, with New Zealand, just a word on them and in Australia... There are that many cricket fans. I think those who are into cricket have followed the World Cup and they were there cheering them at the MCG, watching on the TVs and listening on the radio and probably there in Fed Square today 
watching the, the team lift the trophy again. In New Zealand, people who probably really didn't care that much about cricket have suddenly been talking about cricket. I think they've got a whole new generation of followers from from this particular tournament and that's a, a huge difference between the two sides. One thing I've noticed with New Zealand at the moment is that they've got a full bowling attack now. You know, Previously they've generally had maybe one really good player, one good bowler and a couple of sort of support ones who'll, who'll do a job but aren't really great threats. Now they've got a full attack and they've got players in reserve where they've got Bolton Southey who've been the spearheads throughout the tournament but they've got guys like Mitch McLenaghan who couldn't get a game despite having outrageously good ODI stats. Um, they probably won't have Vittori but they're going to be able to take this same attack to England and, and bring it to Australia and, and quite possibly win tests on the back of this bowling. There's a couple of things about that. About England series in a couple of months' time you know, um, firstly, I mean, it's ridiculous for the side as good as New Zealand only get two tests at the start of the summer as, as sort of palette wetter. Um, but secondly, you know, Salvi and Bolt in English conditions in June is going to be a nightmare. You know? A handful, absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> but, um, and they've, yeah, like you say, they've got the depth. I mean, Adam Milne seems a bit of a distant memory, but he was bowling 150 clicks throughout. Um, you know, Carl Mills is likely ret- to retire now, but he's been a serious ODI bowler for a while. So have got, got Wagner too, who uh, mm. is more of a red ball bowler. That's right. Uh, he's, he's another lefty. It's the year of the left hand. Indeed, yeah. You know, if you're right hand fast bowler, forget it. Just you're chuck out. it in the other hand and <laughs> get on with it. I mean, how good for, for Matt Henry to, to come in from, well, I say from cold. It's the, the reason why he was brought in ahead of those already in the squad is because he was actually playing cricket. So, arguably, you know, more geared up just to slot in and, and go straight away with his rhythm. But, you know, he's only 23 and coming in on a, a World Cup semi final like that. I mean, what a stage. And he, you know, I thought he bowled very well in the, in the final as well. He was, he was right up there, sort of giving his all till the end and, and still creating some. Some problems, and if they've got backup bowlers like that, it's holding them in good stead, not just now, but for a good number of years to come. Absolutely. And, and speaking of the weirdness of having them as pellet wetters in England, they're also they're not getting a Boxing Day test in Australia when they tour here in the next oh, Australian summer. Probably more of their own choosing because they've got their own domestic. Uh, international cricket, probably. Right. But it is unfortunate. Mm. They, they deserve that. And we'd rather have them, I think, at the moment than the West Indies at that time of the summer. Yeah, so, I mean, are we, we're probably more likely to have a three-day test match with the West Indies at the MCG, whereas New Zealand, you'd, you'd think, would give you a run at the moment. You'd suspect there might not be another record crowd for the West Indies test yeah. on Boxing Day, <laughs> I suspect. You're, you're telegraphing this one early. I'm calling that one. Um, it was a much more sort of reserved crowd, that, that 93,000, 94,000 than, say, the 87,000 at the India game. Um, but it was quite intense. I mean, do you think that had an effect on New Zealand? It seemed like they had a lot of support in the ground. All the neutrals were going for them, plus a good wedge of, of Kiwis who live in Melbourne I or think came just, over. I think with just the sheer scale of the place, it really does take some getting used to. And I know they did their sort of fact-finding recce back in... October or whatever, which Grant Elliott wasn't invited on. Um, <laughs> and, and now his face is on T-shirts. Indeed, yeah. Um, and all that kind of stuff. But you can't, I, as I said at the start of the show, I, I find it an arresting atmosphere just as someone in the ground, so let alone being someone in the middle. And, you know, someone like Corey Anderson, say, coming out to bat at number six, Taylor gets out at the start of a power play and the crowd's gone a little bit feral again. And, you know, that's his first experience on the ground. 
And I'm not really surprised in that light that he was gone within two balls. Yeah, I think it often takes a little time after the event for players to actually admit that an occasion or a crowd has overawed them. And that's certainly the, the case with some of the England players you know, during Whoops. the Ashes. Yeah, and, and it's no one will say it at the time. And certainly in the build-up, no one is going to admit that this could be an intimidating atmosphere. But mm. boy, it is. And if you're ever lucky enough to even go out to the middle as the crowd is filling up in the MCG and you, you look up and... It, the word Colosseum is often used, isn't it? Because it is sheer, it is tall, it is daunting. Yes, um, I think you know, just the, the sheer fact that all of a sudden, as much as they downplayed the fact that you know, Matthew Hayden went on about it, it's a, it's a big place and uh, they won't be able to you know, find their way to the boundary as easily as they did on the New Zealand small grounds. I mean, that's over there. Um, when you're playing in a tournament and every game you play, you've got the, the whole nation behind you in everything you do. It's, it's got to make you feel as though you're part of it and you can focus on what you're supposed to do. The atmosphere at the MCG was so different. and that As, as you mentioned earlier, it's probably why Anderson you know, in part missed the ball. They just weren't used to it. Uh, and here we are with a New Zealand team in Australia for the first time playing one-day cricket there for six years, for goodness That's sake. That's remarkable in itself. <laughs> well, it says something about the way mm-hmm. the relationship's been handled or not uh, in the last six years because we like to do business with organisations, with the teams that give us a lot of money, uh, India and, and the Ashes. And this is the commercial reality, New Zealand, the duds at the box office. No thanks, won't have that Chapel Hadley trophy. Did they play for the Chapel Hadley trophy? I didn't Again, see it. Again, in the right. final. They did, yeah. <laughs> yeah they did? No. Australia. They what, didn't. Oh, previous, sure previously in the World Cup. They did in, they did in Auckland, yes, they did but in they Auckland. didn't yesterday. I they sort know. of threw it in the carry-on bags and took it over to Auckland, <laughs> yeah. but I don't think it came back, though. Yeah, um, yeah well, I mean, it, it's, it's a particularly strange sort of uh, idea when you've now got a side that's, that's really going to give you a contest, and so hopefully things will change over the next couple I mean, of years if they can maintain that competitiveness. Well, we've got to get the Chapel Hadley Trophy back in on a regular basis, even if it's a one-off. Mm. Why can't we have it? We have this strong bond, certainly, and you know, Zach tradition and, and the rest of it, and the whole history of this Australasian thing, if you mm. want to examine it, going back 100 years. Um, and we get bounced by the All Blacks every year in the Bledisloe Cup. We've got to beat them at something, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where are you going to play these matches, though? This, this is a difficulty with, you know, with the Associate Nations and that idea with the World Cup as well, mm. getting them more matches. Where is it going to fit in? Because we've got seven match one-day series popping up all over the place, which is far too many for a one-day series. Where, where are they all going to fit in? The schedule is just I mean, yeah, bonkers. India and Sri Lanka have a sort of permanent bilateral ODI series going on, don't they? Four, right. four or five series a year. and It can South never Africa be won. And, it can never be lost. Yeah, <laughs> South Africa and West Indies are exactly the same. They, I seem to be, you know, I, I fall asleep mm. and they're playing and I wake up and they're playing somewhere else. Um, you know, it, it's just constant. So we need, I mean, the schedule needs to be readjusted massively. I think one of the, as, as Jim says, um, one of the, you know, possibly one of the better things that could come from this World Cup is that New Zealand are never going to dine at the top table financially, but you know they deserve the games against you know the, 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 well they are one of the top sides. Mm. Um, oh, the I mean, way they've played. Yeah. I mean, we hear the word momentum overused a lot in sport, but that's what really um, summed up New Zealand's campaign for me. They had such huge momentum. They said we're going to go all out attack. You know, whether with the bat or in the field, McCullum smashing seventies off twenty balls, or or putting four or five slips, you know, four slips in a gully, and having these test match fields bowling sides out for under two hundred repeatedly. It was just so exciting. 
but I think what really set that off was was how the level of sportsmanship that they showed as well. They were completely respectful of their opponents at the same time as they were devastating them on the field. Mr. Grace is Vittori. Yep. The most gracious cricketer uh, of the era, no doubt. Wonderful. He's, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, but but it seems to be something that's gone through that entire team and that McCullum has instilled in them that they they need to be respectful towards the people they're playing and, and towards the game. But it always has been like that with New Zealand. And if you look at the last, I looked it up, the last six ICC awards, New Zealand have won three of the last six Spirit of Cricket mm. awards. And when Vittori picked up the last one, which was an individual award rather than a team award, I swear there was just a little bit of, again, from him, (laughs) just because New Zealand were never winning, you know, Test Team of the Year or ODI Player of the Year. I know McCullum and Saudi, I think, have won a couple of T20 Players of the Year. But it was always as if, here's New Zealand, they haven't won anything, but we'll give them the Spirit Spirit of Cricket cricket. Award. But they really do try. (laughs) But now, you know, now they're winning stuff as well. They're getting to finals. They're showing they've got a a, a team with, with metal to count and you can actually play with brilliant sportsmanship and still win top quality cricket matches. Mm. A lesson in there, perhaps for <laughs> maybe some more local players. I don't know, Jim. There's, you know, some people say, "Oh, that's all rubbish. We should just be as hard as nails." And and some people say that it's a, a little embarrassing that that the Australian team's so uh, anti that kind of point of view. We win ugly, don't we? A lot of the time. Yeah, uh, it's been pretty snarly since the days of Steve War. It strikes me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this mental disintegration that we go on with. Uh, it's n- not the, the case with uh, all the players who think of Gilchrist and Hussey, mm-hmm. but there's there's always there's a few dogs off the chain, um, and and that's not going to change. I mean, Warner's not going to change really. The only thing it'll change them if they if they, if they start getting suspended uh, rather than just fined uh, for send offs or being third man in in some of these arguments, but. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. You, you think about all this the theatricality we have in the game, and, and some of it unnecessary. And yet, there it was in Adelaide. I mean, probably the greatest forty minutes of the whole tournament in terms of as something on a stage that you you wanted to see again and again and again was Wahab Riaz boring it up, Shane Watson, and you know they did eyeball each other, and there probably was a bit of Urdu and a bit of English going on in there, mm. and it was wonderful. I mean, mm. Uh, I was on with Kevin Peterson, actually, on the radio, and yep. he kept saying, and this is a player's perspective, obviously, he kept saying, Damasina, keep out of it. Keep away from it. Let them go. Mm. This is wonderful. Uh, they're not punching each other. Uh, let them play. Let them do what they're doing. And, um, yeah, it was a fair point. And there was that image at the end of the game of, of Wahab embracing Watson, sort of giving him a hug and, and saying, well played, you know, which which, which sort of touched all the uh, the sentimental parts in us that went, ah, oh, yes, glorious sportsmanship. <laughs> and I suppose Brad Haddon's going to say, well, I won a World Cup, so... You know, you can complain all you like, but this was slightly off topic, but probably my favourite image of the entire World Cup was Brad Haddon in the change rooms after the game, looking kind of puzzled and just slowly pouring a beer over the top of the World Cup trophy. <laughs> and it was like he'd said, well, it's a World Cup, you're supposed to drink out of it. But he couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And he was just very slowly and deliberately trickling this sponsor VB over the dome at the top and going, nah, what, what's, what's happening? You know, and, and was Shane Warren there at the time? No, he wasn't even around. And about 10 minutes later, I looked at the TV and Haddon was doing it again. He was back there by himself at the table <laughs> pouring another beer. And he still couldn't figure it out. But uh, I, I don't know what the secret was that he was looking for. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a genie somewhere in there and it's about $280,000 per player. <laughs> so maybe he was just doing that to make sure that it was going to give up 
uh, what the, the players, apart from the, the prestige and everything else, uh, are going to be rewarded with. It was, it was interesting because I was talking to Dean Jones and he said in 1987 when they won, they got $900 each. So <laughs> wow. the game's come a long way in terms of the rewards and fair enough to the players. It's a big event. They should get those sort of rewards. But mm. It's staggering, isn't it? Oh, I mean, inflation doesn't really keep up with that sort of rate of change, does it? That's gone! You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Will McPherson, Jim Maxwell and Alison Mitchell. And I'd like now to talk about the World Cup that's been, you know, what we've seen, um, how it's worked. I mean, it's been a very long ride. It's been, what, six, seven weeks now. That oh, month, I thought, sorry, I thought months. Is months. It not, no? yeah, weeks. Well, oh, good, it, only weeks. Good. Well, it's almost <laughs> 43 days. Yeah, yeah, we're just about to tip over into the second month to make it months. Um, how do you think the World Cup's worked, Alison? Has it worked? Could it work better? What do we do with it? Uh, group stage, some terrific matches, particularly between the associate nations, uh, even between some associates and, uh, and full member nations. But again, just a bit too long. Um, it would have captured more of the local interest earlier in Australia if it had been on free-to-air. So the momentum took a long time to build up. Why can't we have two matches per day? In, in the group stage, certainly get that shortened. And then, yeah, quarterfinals onwards, knockout crickets. I know we didn't always have brilliant quarterfinal matches, but from that stage onwards, people can understand much better, you know, get a much tighter handle on what's going on. So from quarterfinals onwards, I don't think there's too much wrong. But um, certainly that group stage, again, just feels a bit too drawn out. It did, it did drag a bit, didn't it? When you, you might have one game on in the day, it might not be a hugely competitive match. Um, if it, Sometimes they were in New Zealand, they'd be over relatively early in Australia and then sort of that was it. You'd have this empty evening with no, there was no cricket on in the evenings um, a lot of days, which seems like a strange way to run a... It was a funny situation um, because I think they only actually ended up having two full dead rubbers at the very end of the... The England-Afghanistan obviously was and was one other. But... Um, it felt like there were a lot more, you know. I mean, even even Australia, New Zealand at Eden Park was essentially a contextless match. It was just, you know, on the way. It was basically mm. about who was going to top the group, right? And you know, great. But they both they both had home quarterfinals. They both knew where they were going to be playing. So it's just right. a question of who they were going to beat in those. And as long as they finished one and two, they were mm. both guaranteed home semi-finals. Yeah. So there was really nothing much to play for in that contest. Well, you, you could have. Because drop the quarterfinals and put more pressure on teams to make sure they finished higher to play in the semifinals. And mm. in 1992, when we had nine teams, there was only semifinals, right. no quarterfinals. And uh, you know they, they were two pretty impressive matches in their way. Uh, one where the rain mucked up South Africa, but they'd probably muck themselves up against England for a slow overrate. And then, of course, Inzmam al-Haq stealing the game from New Zealand in, in the other semi-final. So that's another way of looking at it. Um, and I can see where the ICC are coming from. They want a, a, a tournament of substance so that every game has something on it. And, and that's the Champions Trophy, isn't it, really? Right. Uh, that's, that's straight that knockout. Is. You yeah, know. yeah. And um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure which way to go. There's got, there's got to be some method of, of encouraging these teams uh, beyond just playing in their own little, you know, little um, associate competition. Uh, and what the answer is, is it uh, 10, 12 or 14? And I'm sure there's more discussion coming out of all of this t to work out what is the best format. I think um, Andy Moles, the Afghanistan coach, you just kept harping on and on. I think he was bored of saying it by the end and he looked tired of saying it. But, um, but yeah, it is the World Cup. The clue is in the name. And I don't think a 10-team World Cup is representative of 
the wider world, wider cricketing world, if you like. Mm. Um, I think I agree with Jim, but if you if you're going to do this sort of fourteen team two pools of seven, I think we do have to go straight to semi-finals and make those two top spots in the group something that the you know the, the sides have to really battle for because of the, you know the way it was. Um, it was just all a little bit too easy, mm. wasn't it? But didn't the, the the top two placings sort of determine who went through? If you tied the semi, is that right? If you tied the knockout match, either a quarter or a semi, you're, you're placing the group. Yeah. Yes, I mean your chances place. of a tie so, yeah, are minimal, if, but that was that was some, something to play for. It was on the cards in that, that South African New Zealand well, yeah, semi. Yeah. You know, they were they were definitely playing. They were we thinking of the, the tie, tie at the end. Yeah. You know, they need five to tie and six to win. That sort of the. You know, was was the important point there? So that might be in the minds of those who have read the small print of the regulations, but sure. probably for the for, for the fan who, who's watching that group game, going, "Oh, this is for one or two in the group." Mm, mm. Okay, they're already through. That's all yeah. they're thinking of. Well, the other option is possibly bringing in uh, bringing back something like the Super Sixes, where that uh, at least had at least you had a couple of sort of top ish teams that were going to miss out, um, but then that sort of dragged the tournament yeah, on. Yeah, I mean longer. Like, yeah. I was saying before we started, I don't remember anything about my life before the World Cup. And I feel like Super Sixes will just be, you know, add to that uh, sort of interminable length. You just, you're just here forever. So yeah. I- I'm not a fan of that Super Six, Super Eight concept because I think again, just the way the tournament then is represented to the to the fans. What, what does it mean? Mm. And if you want to bring in people who aren't normally into cricket as well, Super Eight. Casual what what stage are we at? Yeah. yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. people know what a quarter final means, they know yeah. what a semi final means. Right. Onwards. How do they do double headers uh, in England? Though it was easy here with the time zones. Yep, but um, they still didn't really do it. I mean, we only had a well, couple of double headers a week. They, they yeah. didn't do enough of it. And they even had a rest day at one point. So we could have had that pool stage of 40-odd games over in under three weeks if they'd had two games a day. Um, and you'd think you could schedule it to say, well, there's probably going to be one slightly less um, essential glamorous. Or, or glamorous fixture per day. And you, you have that as your early game and, and one um, bigger ticket item that you have later. But then would we have missed out, just playing devil's advocate really, would we have missed out on seeing the the end of the New Zealand, sorry, the end of the Scotland-Afghanistan match, for example, if, what was it, that, that day, was it Sri Lanka-Bangladesh? Bangladesh. Um I don't know. Could you have a broadcaster who's able to switch between games? Or well, as we had know. it here, everything was on cable TV, and so each game was on its own own station. Yeah. So you could follow. If you've you could got switch that many channels, then games. you've got the choice. And if you had free to air, you had no option to watch any of the games, so you didn't get to see anything happen at all. You know, there was a, a gap of two weeks at one point where Australia had a washout, and and there were you know there was a fortnight between Australian games. So the World Cup effectively wasn't happening for sort of eighty percent of people in Australia who don't have cable TV. Yeah, if we were running it, we, t- we could take two weeks off it right now, couldn't mm, we? Absolutely, easily. I mean, scheduling wise, was was one day. I can't. Remember, it was a Monday a few weeks ago where there wasn't a game in yeah. the middle of a pool session. Rest day. What, what are we doing? <laughs> right. Yes. Why yeah. is there no cricket on today? Yeah. Who needs um, a rest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't. Right. I mean, Dan, Dan Vittori said in uh, after one or before one of the New Zealand games uh, over there. But it, it's it's a funny one for the players as well because you know they play these bilateral ODIs. They travel, train, play, travel, train, play, and it's all every three days pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then they have this where they might have an eight day gap, right. and they're only playing hundred overs of cricket. I mean, yep. it's not. It is physically taxing. I accept that, but it's not. You know, it's not like slugging it out for a game of rugby mm. or whatever. 
you know, they they could play every other day. But I there think. were also logistical issues with some, you know, say the Afghanistan team, they said by the end of the tournament they were quite exhausted because they'd had to travel from New Zealand to Perth to Canberra Brisbane. to Hobart to, to Wellington again, you know, and, and were they were buggered. You know, they weren't used to it. They weren't used to that level of travel and having to back up and, and uh, play a day or two after those trips. Do you think we should get Duckworth Lewis on to doing the schedule? I'm sure they could come up with a formula that would prevent teams travelling here, there and everywhere and be more sort of centralised for, for, for longer periods. But I, I reckon that's one for them to sort for sure. You'd, you'd think it would be possible to have sort of groups in areas. So maybe you play most of your games in Melbourne and Hobart or you play them mm-hmm. in Sydney and Brisbane or Adelaide and Perth or, or in New Zealand. So well, you've, you've got four sort got, of groups. You've got four islands, haven't yep. you? Yeah. <laughs> you've got think- Tasmania, Australia... In the North and South, South Island. I think the UAE's first four games, in fact, yeah, they and they, they, after three weeks, this was their longest tour ever. So, they, right. and, yeah. but their first four games were Nelson, followed by so New Zealand, South Island, then over to Perth, then Brisbane, then Napier. So, and Napier was the most easterly of the grounds. Perth was the most westerly. Brisbane was the most <laughs> northerly. Right. And Nelson was on the South Island, New Zealand. So, I mean, just. Um, really thrown about the place and I mean I'm not we're not going to have these problems next time because we're in England and <laughs> which because is, those teams won't which be is there. a walk around in two hours so um, oh, yeah. you know that's not such an issue and there will be little groups of grounds which we could you mm. know you could could maybe be doing games it can take you about as long to drive down the M1 as it takes to fly from Perth to Nelson the works that are going on there will still be going on at the same time <laughs> 2019 anyway so <laughs> absolutely <laughs> still be going on at the turn of the will next the ga- millennium will there be games in Ireland that's going to be interesting oh, yeah that's it oh, Edinburgh get yeah. up to Edinburgh Grange mm, you're nice on a reserve day weren't you <laughs> indeed yeah. <laughs> yeah but they're not I mean they're not far away these are these are places that, yeah. that could and should be used there's there's a one day game um, in, in Ireland for the Ashes to a, the Australian yeah. To a, to and England, England are going year. to Malahide and Dublin right. as well mm-hmm. in, in May. It's yeah. being hosted by the England and Wales Cricket Board. Yes, yes, <laughs> which which always gets <laughs> left out. Someone was posting on Twitter, why don't you criticise the Welsh? Um, <laughs> they, they get a free pass with all of this. But it, you'd think even in England it, might, it would be possible to say start have a game that starts at 10am um, and a game that starts at half past two, for instance. Then you'd get the entire first innings and, and a bit of the second innings of the first game in before the second one starts and you'd have the end of the second game would be well after the first game had finished. So you'd have an overlap of maybe 40 overs, say, um, which seems entirely manageable, particularly if it's going to be on cable TV. Well, why not do that? Why not have two a day and why not knock the thing out in quicker time and, and have that sort of sense of excitement that you have? I mean, we had this in Melbourne when, when the Asian Cup was played here, Jim. There was a lot of uh, attention and focus behind it. There were lots of games on. People picked teams, you know, neutral teams to get behind and... There was a sense of involvement and inclusion in that tournament that I haven't felt has been publicly there in the World Cup. You know, I've been watching every game because I'm an addict. But, um, but for the average sort of punter out there who's who's sort of you know, doesn't mind the cricket but isn't going to go out of their way to to see every match, it hasn't been brought to them. The issue in England again is going to be though more than likely, uh, and I'm not sure of the contractual situation that it's all on cable TV, no- nothing on terrestrial TV, which is you know is a highlights mass- probably that'll be maybe it. highlights, yeah. but you know it's a it's a massive issue for cricket in England at the moment that the exposure of the game isn't where it needs to be, um, given that they've got something called football that is between an obsession and a disease that goes on for twelve months of the year just about, mm. and it's just killing off cricket in a very big way, I think. Yeah, was, yeah. I mean, 
the free-to-air debate's going to rage and rage and rage. I mean, we, it, it came into particular sharp focus in January when everyone was waking up and or in the office and had half an hour of a big bash, uh, which was you know, quite conveniently timed at about nine o'clock in the morning. So you could sort of, you know, lazy people were still in bed and hardworking people <laughs> watching in the office. Um, but we were, lots of people were watching, even though it was on Sky, and everyone knew that it was on Channel 10 here. Um, and the, the big debate about our own... Uh, T20 competition and getting getting that on free to air TV, which I personally believe is key. Um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But you know, somehow we need to bring cricket back to the masses in the UK. Having been in Australia throughout the the Big Bash here, the Big Bash certainly resonated amongst the the general public and the casual sports fan mm-hmm. much more than the World Cup has. Okay, now Australia won the trophy, and, and that, that momentum, yes, much more so with the you know the the, the matches coming in quick succession on free to air TV. But the Big Bash, yeah, on every night, six pm, seven pm, when you're getting the the tea ready with the kids, you know, it's stretched across all ages as well. I spent I spent a lot of the World Cup in New Zealand, but I felt. Uh, from over there, that it, it sort of felt a lot more disparate in Australia. Uh, the World Cup, you know, New Zealand was sort of, it was sort of everyone was close together, everyone was talking about it. Whereas, it just I didn't go to either of these venues, but it felt like the World Cup actually never went to Brisbane or Perth. I know they, or even Canberra, they were a bit unlucky with fixtures. Maybe Brisbane had a washout, but it felt like it just sort of came and went there in a way that it didn't in New Zealand, and hopefully. I mean, hopefully it's going to have left an indelible mark in New Zealand because New Zealand cricket needs that indelible mark. But um, Australia, it certainly felt a little bit slightly more disparate event here. It seemed like, I mean, just just watching on TV, there was more inclination for for New Zealanders who who weren't aligned to either team to go down and watch Mm. a a game between two sort of lower ranked sides or something like that as a, you know, go and watch an Afghanistan game as a fun day out, whereas that didn't seem to be happening so much here. There were there were partisan groups of supporters. You know, the Bangladeshi supporters would go, or the Afghanistan supporters would go, but um, but neutrals wouldn't. Yeah, for instance, Nelson was the only New Zealand venue which didn't get a New Zealand pool game um, of the seven. But they and they got. I, I think I think it was Zimbabwe UAE, which I was at there, and they um, were just thousands of kids. They'd obviously just given tickets to schools to try in an effort to get people. It was like rent a mob kids, kids essentially, but it was <laughs> great. And the atmosphere was incredible. They were all wearing uh, shirts of the two different teams and obviously the Tui Catch a Million thing obviously um, resonated with adults as they tried to grab a bounty. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it just, yeah, it did. It, it, it is cliched, but it did really capture the imagination over there in a way that it hasn't possibly here. I did see a couple of kids nearly crushed by people trying to take yes. catches over the top of them. Yes. So it <laughs> may not have been the, the soundest OH&S policy there. <laughs> well, Brendan McCullum was insistent on, on making his country rich, wasn't he? He was, right. gi- he was giving them as much catching practice <laughs> as he could. <laughs> Maybe he had a deal, you know. I'll, <laughs> I'll hit share. it to you. Um, I'll take 20%. <laughs> the issue for the next World Cup really is the size of England's grounds. I mean, over a million people attended this tournament. There's mm. no way that can happen in England. There's no way they can get anywhere near half the crowd we had at the final uh, at, at Lords. Mm. Um, and it'd you know, be, a, be a third, roughly, wouldn't it? Well, thirty-two thousand, I think. So. Yeah, I remember having a, a bit of a realization. I think it, it was at the Sri Lanka Bangladesh match at the G, and and you were commentating and sort of thinking, Oof, ground feels a bit empty. And then the attendance figures comes in, and it's sort of about twenty-five and a half thousand or something. You think, oh well, there you go. That's Lords sold out. That's the Oval sold out. Yeah, you know, yeah. Very yeah, different perspectives. You know, that's suddenly. Trent Bridge, you know, with a with a queue <laughs> all the way down. The- yeah. Could the Millennium Stadium and or Wembley become the Eden Park? The one. Of the one, British cricket, the that's one an would be thought. the uh, the Olympic Stadium, yeah, in in London. Well, that's, that's an oval. Setting. That's an oval, isn't What's it? What's it used for? 
Dragon well, it's kind concerts of, and, and yeah, it's athletics becoming, and, and West oh, football, Ham of course, yeah. are moving in there. But um, it's still going to be an oval, you'd think. <laughs> Those structures are oh, there; they're pretty yeah. permanent. Right. Um, so that would certainly be a possibility. I think that would be a potential if if we did get some kind of half decent T Twenty competition. Hmm. That would possibly be a place to trial um, big games. I expect to see some good articles from you about this we'll in see, the, got, the next I'll, year or two because they've got to do something. You can't keep playing on these stupid small grounds. For, they're just useless uh, for big events. They, they might have a lot of character and history, but you've got to get more people to go to these things, surely. And Absolutely. And even um, in the India-Bangladesh uh, quarterfinal at the G felt empty, as you say, uh, about the Sri Lanka game. But uh, there were 51,000, which is, you mm. know, double any ground, any attendance we're going to have at the, the mm. World Cup. And you're absolutely right. But that one million figure isn't going to come close. We will be appointing you a special advisor to the ECB to work these issues I out. I fly home tonight, so I'll go straight to the <laughs> meeting stadium when I get you. back. <laughs> Just start digging a hole for the drop-in pitch now. I'm, I'm sure they won't arrest you. All will be well. That's gone! You're on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jim Maxwell, Alison Mitchell and Will McPherson. And to close out the show today, I think we should look at the riches and the glory that we've had from some of the some of the contributors over this World Cup. We can roughly look at it as a World Cup eleven, but it, maybe it's more of an excuse just to look at which players caught our eye. But I, I think if you were picking a team, I'd start at the bowling end because that's the easiest bit to do. There's, I don't think there could be any debate that uh, Trent Bolt and Mitchell Stark would be your, mm-hmm. your strike bowling pair. Twenty-two wickets apiece, Bolt at an average of sixteen, Stark at an average of ten. Um, you know, they would just ridiculous. They, they blew away the tournament, <laughs> really, didn't yeah. they? Yes. It's, this is going to be an interesting exercise. I've already done this once, and uh, I'll come to it as you go. There might be one country that misses out. But mm-hmm. Let's keep going. It's fun. <laughs> All right. So with, with with those two in, and I think, well, you've you've got the argument about the spinner spot because you've got Vittori and Imran Tahir. They've taken the, the same number of wickets. Vittori slightly more economical. But if you're picking a side, I'd probably want Vittori because he could come in at eight and he's won a couple of games with the bat, whereas uh, Imran... You'd want, you'd want Imran to hear for his celebrations, though. That's the problem. That is true. Um, yes, and he's, he's cel- a leggy, and you always pick a leggy if you can. If you can. Yeah, no, Imran Tahir was, was a the star. Americans would love him because he looks like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, actually. I hadn't but actually have, consider it. But you'd have Vittori in the yeah. side for cranking up those 36-year-old limbs and taking amazing one-handed overhead mm. leaping catches on the boundary, although how many more times he could do that is debatable. That was the most casual, ridiculous <laughs> catch I've seen since Rangana Herath took one, I think, at the SCG, oh, yeah. just just sort of casually leaping backwards. Two very unlikely yeah. uh, catches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, both left armers, you know. So it's all about left arm, as you said, Jim. It, it is. is. And your other pace bowler for me has to be Wahab Riaz. Yep. Mm. Bowl the most thrilling sp- spell of the World Cup. And he's also brilliant when they defended 230-odd against South Africa at Eden Park. Mm. Uh, he was absolutely exceptional that day. He was. Um, and he, he was fierce that day. And, he and they had three left armers in their attack that day. So it's not. It's, we can do that. We're yep. allowed to do that. It can be done. I mean, your other sort of candidates would, you know, Umesh Yadav took a, a stack of wickets. Mohamed Shami was very consistent through the tournament. And he, was, he was really impressive for me. Mornay Morkel was up there and Jerome Taylor in terms of sort of taking wickets. They each had 17 wickets, but Wahab had 16, but uh, but just seemed to have that kind of ferocity. Should have had 17. Should have had 18, actually. Well, Sh- yeah, Shami's been part of that Indian unit that consistently bowled out teams, didn't they? Mm. Like 70 wickets until they came up against um, the Australians. Uh, but, yeah, and more, more cool. 
I think I'd give it to him just to console him from the, the, the tears at the end because that was, that was heart-wrenching to see his tears at the end of the semi-final. Um, but that's the spell from Wahab. If you're going to mm. hand, hand someone a place on a, on a performance. On but six he, overs. On six <laughs> overs, yeah, he, he can have it. It was yep. scintillating. So maybe an emotional pick over Shami and, and mm. Morkel there for Wahab. So, you know, your bowling's relatively self-explanatory, but what I was really struggling with was how many wicket-keepers can I have in a side? <laughs> because um, Kumar Sangakara makes four centuries on the trot. You know, A.B. de Villiers redefines batting in its entirety, turns it inside out, shakes the contents out, throws it on the floor and leaves. Um, <laughs> Brenda Taylor from Zimbabwe had an absolutely scintillating tournament. fourth on the run scorers list, I That's think. right. You know, 433 runs for the tournament, two centuries and a 50. And, you know, he was making those against good sides and he was and he was scoring at a terrific rate as well. And then Brendan McCullum. I mean, obviously, they, some of these are retired wicket keepers, but, you know, you've got options. You could have all four of those in your top six and you'd never have a worry if, if your keeper, you know, had an injury halfway through. I'd definitely have three of them. Donny, I'm afraid, lost his place when he failed to run his bat in and put in a dive yes. in the, yeah. the semi final. Yep. No, that, that was it for me. No. <laughs> effort. <laughs> Don't, no, Danny's def- definitely out of it. I mean, it, it picks itself a bit, doesn't it, that batting order? Steve you, you've Smith, got to have yeah. Guptill McCullum. and McCullum, Sangakara and Smith, Smith. De Villiers. Maxwell. Maxwell. And uh, the number seven is very interesting. Uh, the I one think... I throw in is Anderson from New Zealand yeah, mm. as an all-rounder, um, and which means if you look down that list, right, and you've picked Wahab Riaz, there's not one Indian in the side. Mm. I think um, I think a candidate could be Suresh Reiner. I think he's I think he's sort of criminally underrated. I think mm. he he had a great chase with with Dhoni against Zimbabwe. I, t- I would have Shikhar Dhawan ahead of Martin Guptill because Guptill I thought just made made rubbish runs. You know, they were like sure he made two hundred and thirty seven, yeah, yeah. two hundred and thirty seven awful runs. Yeah, they, they were. I mean, you know, it was it was all well and good, but he did that. He monstered that side, and he made a hundred against Bangladesh, and he did bugger all against anybody else. Um, and and I mean, to the point where he actually was a drag on the side against, you know, in, in some other innings, um, like in that Australian innings, he just couldn't get going. He looked awkward and, and I thought the way, like how badly he played actually was a contributing factor to what happened um, next to New Zealand because he sort of sucked the air out of out of the innings when he could have kept it going a bit. You mentioned Bangladesh there and um, I don't think he would get him his side, but Mamadullah needs yes. to mention. He's he, my 12th Yeah. <laughs> I think 12th. Jason Holder would be my 12th man just because I feel, you know, embattled Jason Holder. Mamadullah would have, would be a really good shout. I mean, he's he's made two centuries in the tournament, three hundred and sixty five runs. He also bowls fairly handy off spin. So and they were his country's first two centuries at World Cups. You that's know, true. Yep. Of, you Getting know. Bangladesh into the quarters for the first time, yep. seeing off England at the same time, mm. and dedicating it all to his mum, mm. which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> but but I mean, so with the batting lineup that powerful, maybe you don't need an all rounder at seven. Maybe you could just have Maxwell. an all out an all out bowling attack. So maybe maybe they're you know, Mitchell Johnson sneaks in as your fourth seam of Vittori bats seven, Johnson bats eight. Because they both made runs, Stark nine, and then Wahab so, and Bolt to, so to four, round it four out. Four left arm seamers. Why not? Yeah. If we're going to go all out. Mm. You know, like, <laughs> Lefty party. Yeah, um, and left arm spinner as well. So it's an entirely left arm <laughs> attack. Well, Maxwell's <laughs> going to chip in with a couple of. Yeah. Apologetic offies. Yeah. Um, Maxwell took some wickets as well. Did, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Three hundred plus runs at a strike rate of one hundred and eighty, and he runs people out. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. As does Smith. Smith. Yeah. Yeah. So Maxwell in the field, you think adds probably ten or twenty runs a game just by well, and Smith. Just Smith by can saves also and, Smith can also be master in charge of reviews mm-hmm. because he, he's know, spectacular. He's got yes. great hearing. That was incredible. Mm. Uh, in the in the semi final, he was at 
Rahani. That, that could point, cover, wasn't he? Or yeah, cover, but yeah. cover point. Yep. And uh, he, you, knew, you, you saw straight away he was up and saying, we have to review this. Mm. He's hit it. So, I mean, McCullum's the only obvious opener I've I've got out of that lot. I don't know. I'd take it's you've left, Yeah, it's because yeah. you've left out. You've left the top <laughs> scorer in the tournament out. Yeah, and I'm happy to do that because I just don't rate his <laughs> I mean, I guess Chris Gale got a cheap 200 well, as well in your we, yeah, We're not having him in, though. <laughs> <laughs> but Gale, I mean, you know, Gale, similar sort of thing. He, he gets that 200, but he does nothing, you know, at, at any other time. And... It really was. We discussed it that week as the worst double century you'll ever see in one day cricket. Absolutely, it was yeah. just, can can you keep bowling at my pads and I'll just keep <laughs> swinging it over mid-wicket again I mean, and again and again. We, I mean, we're going to need some English representation, so I guess Richard Kettleburn maybe. <laughs> that, 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 that was the joke going around, wasn't it? What do you call an Englishman at a World Cup final? Oh, the umpire. <laughs> wasn't Ian Gould? He was loving England going so badly because it was a chance for him to get a few more games. <laughs> well, yeah, that makes it neutral umpires. <laughs> she get a go. Dilip from Wisdom India said, to, who's appeared on this show before, he said to me last night, you do know that's not the last time you're going to see Australians celebrating under confetti this year. Yes. Said, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, come August, it's going to be exactly the same. It's probably going to be before the Oval. <laughs> so uh, so we sort of, we're agreed through a middle order. You'd, you'd have Sang- Would you have Sankara 3 or would you bat Smith 3? I think. Smith 3. I think, Is he? Yeah. Sankar has made 400s natural. there this tournament. Yeah. Sankar has been in the field. I'd leave him at four, yes. Mm-hmm. Poor okay. bloke. I'm I think he'd make the 37 year old wicketkeeper batsman. He did magnificently. How fit is he? Yeah. I, it, it does stagger me that you can spend 50 overs out there doing the crouch and the mm. leap and the, you know, 300 times and then come out and make a, a, a sort of 120 strike rate century. You know, he's made, always clocking them in off 70 balls. He made his two fastest one day centuries in this tournament. Mm. He's only getting better. Yeah, he would. I mean, he's just a guy who's uh, adapted as the game's changed over the last two decades, isn't it? You know, and Vittori's another, and we're saying goodbye to these guys now, so it's a bit. Our team is going to be, yeah, Vittori and uh, him, and we could sort of say goodbye to him. It's very mm. sad. Well, if Sangakara can hit 400s whilst keeping wicket, imagine what he'll score if his legs are that yeah. much fresher. Well, look at <laughs> his, double hundreds. His <laughs> test record, he averages 70 when he's not keeping wicket and about 50 when he is, so. It obviously suits him to uh, to be slightly fresher. So you so you want Maxwell in there at six for your for your destruction strike rate. What is it, hundred and eighty or something? Yeah, hundred and eighty two for the yeah. tournament. Only McCullum out of the you know people who face more than about ten balls has a a better strike rate. Of, so he was he was hundred and eighty eight and Maxwell one hundred and eighty two. And there were a lot of questions, weren't there, about Maxwell and his and, and and his place in the side? Does he can he do it on the big international stage? And he's he's proved all that now. Will he be he? playing at number six in the Ashes? It'll be interesting. well. That's it. Can he, he translate be. it to the white the he red ball be. game? So uh, so I haven't quite worked it. So who are you leaving out? You've got Smith, Sangakara, De Villiers, Taylor, and Maxwell. Those are five. Players well, who could be in a top six. Taylor out of. No, Corey Anderson, oh. he was mentioned, wasn't he? Well, he might come in at seven, but if you're looking at a top six. If, oh, sorry, Guptill then. If you've got Guptill, then, oh, okay. then, then you can't have one of Smith, Sangakara, De Villiers, Taylor, or Maxwell. One of those guys has to go. Now, who, who are you, 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 you going yeah. to <laughs> boot? Who are you going to boot for Martin Guptill? Oh, come on. I'm, I'm really sorry, but Taylor's going for me. Taylor's going for a guy who, I know you're who, who made about attached. three off 40 balls yesterday <laughs> and then was bowled by an absolute trash club cricket ball. But he can't get bowled by Glenn Maxwell when he's playing for our team because they're on the same team, so that's fine. I'm that's not true. His, theory. his secret weakness. <laughs> Kryptonite. Glenn Maxwell. Glenn Maxwell's been a few people's kryptonite. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and... Uh, you know, I suppose then we have to wonder about who we're going to play against. But that might... England, England, of course, <laughs> England, yeah. I didn't say that <laughs> at, at the MCG. Well, I suppose yeah, they're the only team we haven't. Played. England or India, we could have a try series, perhaps. 
Well, if you left out all those Indian players, you better play them and then you'd certainly fill the Yeah, that'd be a match. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm glad we've reached some sort of consensus and we'll call stumps there. That was the Guardian World Cup podcast. And big thanks once again to our guests for the day, Alison Mitchell, Jim Maxwell and Will McPherson. And thanks for the final time for your company today and throughout the series. We've had a great time bringing you the show. Hopefully you've enjoyed it and hopefully there'll also be more podcasting adventures from us in the not-too-distant future. So stay tuned and we will at some stage be able to speak to you again. Until that time, farewell. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.